Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. And um, we want to just uh, do, uh, Jordan had recognized him, but I just want to give a shout out to everybody who's watching in Webland. Thank you for joining us. You know, even though you kind of disconnected in that regards where you're not physically here, God can speak to you today. God can touch you today. He has something for you. And in a strange way, you are here with us. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for all of you who've come and taken a part of your nice weekend to uh, be here. There's something special and honoring to God when His people get together. You may not always get along, but you've got to work it out, because God, God has planned on His people to be together, and uh, we're, just, we're just doing that here. So uh, as you know, we, we are in the midst of the story and the story is uh, kind of a long-term uh, review of us. We're going through the entire Bible, essentially. And the story is an, is an abridged version of the Bible set in chronological order. So it won't include, like, the books of the law, the Proverbs, the Psalms, those type of things. So it doesn't have that, but it has basically the story of God, His people, etc., etc. And here's the timeline. The timeline is happening right here. So this is the beginning, the creation, ending all the way to uh, the second coming of Christ. And so right now, we're right after 930 B.C., the kingdom divides, or, or I'm sorry, the, the fall, um, the north and south, and then the return. So we're right about at that time, the 538, as we're studying today the book of Esther and reading through that. So before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of you working through people, calling people back, redeeming them, the wonderful story that we're a part of. I pray today as we study the story of Esther that we'll be able to see how our, our lives fit into your story and how we can become closer to you, fulfilling your purposes. You are good, and we say amen. Amen. All right, well, if there's anything I want you to kind of gather today, the usher's going to be passing out a handout for you uh, for the outline today. If you want to take one, you certainly can. They'll have a pen for you as well. If there's anything I want you to, to kind of uh, think about here is, is the main theme in the story of Esther. There's a lot to look at, and there's a lot of drama in this. I mean, this would make a great movie. It's like all these character development in these intrigues and deception and, you know, all these chance things that happen and outcome is good. You know, any good story has these things and there's a problem and there's a conflict and then there's a resolution and then there's a reflection. And so, again, this is no exception. But the main, probably the largest theme I feel is this, that God is sovereign, yet He cooperates with what He has created and directs them to fulfill His purpose even through seemingly coincidental events. So the question that may, I would want to pose to you is, how much do you trust God with life? How much do you trust Him in your everyday life? And how, uh, what is He really doing? <laughs> it's, do you trust Him? So some of you may think of God as, you know, Jesus referred to Him as a Father, we call Him our Father, do you think of him as an absent father? As someone who basically got things started and left? See you later. That's co comparatively, that in philosophy of that is deism. Our early forefathers of the, of the United States had that, 
that was a lot of their thought was deism, where they just thought God just kind of spun the world and created things and then stepped away and let man figure it out. Is that how God is for your life? Or it may be the other extreme, where you understand God or you perceive him as like a dictator, someone who has high control, you know, controlling every little thing that you do and if watching to make sure that you do everything right. And if you fail, oh, you failed, right? Perhaps you play it safe and expect small things from God and yourself because of the fear you have in your relationship with Him. Or perhaps you're the other extreme, you get reckless and do, hey, I can do what I want. I have no accountability. God doesn't really care. But the story of Esther kind of delves into this a little bit. Let's get into it. I'm going to just do a quick review of the story uh, of Esther and then um, some other interesting stories, and then we're going to kind of pull out some main themes and visit those. So the Jewish people at this time, they're released from Persia by Cyrus. And remember, they were in exile. So they were, they were out of their land, and they were taken into exile against their will. And this is now thereafter. They're able to go back to uh, Israel, their homeland, and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. However, many of the Jews, rather than returning, they decided to stay for whatever reason and it was a nation that was, wasn't dedicated to Yahweh. They were basically, out, the Jews were outsiders. This was a polytheistic society, like Matt had talked about a couple of weeks ago when he was referring, talking about Daniel. So here's a map, if you want to take a look, just to give you an idea. This is, you know, when they talk about kings in the Bible, a lot of times we think of like city kings, you know, like King of McFarland, you know, a thousand people, and they had a wall, and people were in there. Uh, but this isn't the case. This is in a huge empire. You can see that there's little Jerusalem there, and you can see it goes all the way from Egypt to the outskirts of India. We got all of Turkey, what is now Iraq, Iran. Uh, this is a huge domain. So this is a powerful kingdom, and there's a king, King Xerxes. Say it with me, Xerxes. It takes some exertion to say it. <laughs> so uh, King Xerxes was so powerful, and so he's like, hey, I enjoy myself, and I enjoy my kingdom. I'm going to have this big party, and he has this long, like, week-long party, brings all the dignitaries, and they just have, like, this big drinking fest. So that's what you do when you have all this power and no accountability. So he does this, and uh, he wanted to show off his the queen. So he... He says, bring in the queen, because she was beautiful, and he wanted her just basically to show her off, and uh, she didn't care for that. <laughs> she had had enough of it. She's like, I'm not going. And uh, the nice end, end of the story here is that she isn't killed. That was gracious. But she's removed. She's banished. They say enough of her because they don't want her to set an example of, you know, women dishonoring their husbands. So that's, that's what was decided. So the king starts getting lonely, and so they come up with this plan. They say, all right, let's get all the beautiful virgins from the region to come in. So this is how it was. Again, this is absolute ruler here, so this is what they've done. And when they would, their eunuchs would just go out, the king's eunuchs would go out and select these young women, these beautiful virgins, supposedly, and they didn't have a choice in the matter. Their family could not resist it was the king's order. So Esther is one of them. Now Esther happened to be Jewish, and she was an orphan. 
And so she was taken care of uh, basically by her cousin who turned out, he kind of uh, basically took care of her and he was like a, a father to her. So his name's Mordecai. And Mordecai was also like a, an official within the kingdom, worked closely in Susan near the king's uh, palace. And uh, so she was selected as one of them. So she's brought in, and in preparation for them to go to the king, they had to basically get prepared for an entire year of spa treatments. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, here, if you go to a spa, it's like for four hours. It's like costs all this money to do like four hours. This is an entire year. And all of it is just to get in front of the king, to prepare. And so uh, immediately, let's just pause for a second and contrast this. Esther's a Jew. And the other thing is that Mordecai says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. So she is living in secret. And she's partaking in all these luxuries because she's required to. And contrast that with Daniel. Remember the story? Remember the story, by the way, he was outspoken. I'm a Jew. I'm going to be praying to God alone. I'm not going to be bowing to this idol, and I'm not going to be partaking of the food that you're telling me, that the king's food that I need to. Direct content, uh, contrast to that. So this is where, this is the situation that Esther's in. And uh, so Esther is, gains favor with the king. She is beautiful and lovely of form, it says. And so the king says, or he says, I want her as my queen, this orphan girl is now queen. So her, relation, her relationship with Mordecai, they still kind of keep in touch with each other via messaging. Uh, Mordecai does not have access to the king or to the, the harem. And Mordecai happens to over, just happens to overhear some of the guards of the kings conspiring to kill the king. Mordecai, with this information, sends a message to Esther. That message goes to the king and the situation is dealt with right? Stops it. In the meantime, there's this other man, Haman. Haman is, a, a, works for the king, is close to the king, and the king um, esteemed, basically promotes him, and he's highly honored. And so he's honored to the point, and the, the protocol was, is that they would be esteemed, and everyone would have to bow to this person who's honored. And so Haman is being, you know, toted like this as the man the king honors, and Mordecai does not bow. And they know, Mordecai does tell them, he doesn't bow because he's a Jew. They know that Jews don't bow to anybody. They bow to God only. They pray and worship God only. So Haman is ticked. Haman does not like Mordecai. Well, here's the story, right? The story is, is that Haman is a direct descendant of the Amalek. He's an Amalekite. And if you go back in the story, back in a number of chapters that we've read, it was the story of uh, Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, given an order from God to basically annihilate and take out the Amalekites because of their sin. But Saul does not follow suit. He does not obey God. He keeps some of the plunder. He doesn't destroy them all. He doesn't destroy the king at the time. And Samuel is ticked. God's ticked. And God says, that's it. You're not fit to be king. So... We've reviewed that story, but this story had set with the Amalekite people. They knew that God had set out to eliminate the Jews, and so they had this chip on their shoulder, 
And ever since then, the Amalekites and the Jews were enemies. And here they're meeting, Haman and Mordecai. Haman's getting honored. Mordecai says, I'm not bowing. I'm not recognizing the honor, do you? So, Haman, Haman sets in his heart, he's not satisfied with getting rid of Mordecai. He says, I'm going to get rid of the entire people. Because he has favor with the king now. He, maybe he gets some pull. So it says that Haman rolls the dice. They set dice before him. And it determines the day of which the annihilation of the Jews is going to occur. Haman goes to the king. And he doesn't mention Jews by name. He says there is a certain people group. And they are following their own customs. They're not listening to you. They're not obeying you. It is best we get rid of them. The king says, Sounds good. So the king issues this decree that on that day that was rolled, that that would be the day that the Jews would be annihilated throughout the entire kingdom. Of course, this creates panic, concern. Mordecai goes into, on hearing this, he goes into what they call sackcloth and ashes, and it's the customary way for Jews to uh, mourn and petition to God in a dire situation. Esther responds, she hears about this through messaging, hears about this, Mordecai's getting out of control, sends him clothes, I don't know what that was, basically she's saying, control yourself, it isn't a big deal, or maybe she doesn't know the story, but Mordecai then does respond to her, and he says, you got to know what's, what's going on here, there's an edict, we're going to be destroyed, we're going to be eliminated, so... <clears throat> She, he's, he, uh, he starts telling her, this may be your moment. And I'll get into more detail about that. And she responds with, you're asking for me to sacrifice my life because I'm going before the king. If he doesn't receive me, I'm done. And Esther, finally, with the dialogue back and forth, Esther finally agrees. And she says this, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther offers her life for the sake of God's people. Sound familiar? Right? A foreshadow of what is to come through Jesus. Fortunately, she does this. She comes before the king and he receives her. He doesn't cast her away. Remember, she has favor with him. He doesn't cast her away. And um, she asks, he says, well, what is it you want? She says, I ask for a banquet with you and Haman. And uh, the king says, fine, we'll do it tomorrow. So she's going to be hosting this, she's going to be hosting this banquet. And at the banquet, she sits them down and says, I want to have a banquet tomorrow the next day. And it's like, all right, well, the king was saying, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. So he's, she's really got favor with him, but she asked for another banquet. So it happens at that time, it happens at that time that the, the king, before that second banquet, can't sleep that well. And the king can't sleep. He says, bring in the annals, the records of the, or the, of the empire. And and read them to me so I can sleep. Pretty good sleeping reading, right? Um, it's like reading the, uh, whatever, the, the portions of the public record in our newspapers. So 
reading this and the story of what Mordecai had done earlier, exposing the conspiracy to kill the king, is re recorded. And the king's like, what's been done for Mordecai that he's, he's saved my life? What's been done for him? They're like, nothing's been done for him. And the king, so the king, the next morning, he's like, all right, Haman, before Haman comes, Haman's on his way to conspire to the king to kill Mordecai. He's got a, he's got a pole impale, to impale him on. He's got it ready. He's got it set up. And <clears throat> so Haman's coming to the king with that. The king's coming to Haman saying, I want you to honor Mordecai. <laughs> and Haman does it. It's just killing him, right? Because the guy that he despises, the guy who, who doesn't bow when he's being honored, now he has to honor. And he does it. He does it because he wants to keep his favor with the king. So then comes the second banquet. Haman and the king are there with Esther. And Esther says, this is what I want. I want you to save my people because somebody has sold my people into destruction. What had happened is when Haman had told the king that he could get rid of, he wanted to get rid of this people, that he would give the king a, an amount, which actually turns out to be about two-thirds of the entire income of the empire. He's basically buying the destruction of these people. And the king just wasn't connecting the two or what have you, but this, this money would likely come from the exploits of, I mean, if you annihilate a people, you reduce, if they're tensions with them, you eliminate that problem, and then you get all their resources. And so basically, this is where Haman plans on funding the king's empire with this. He promises this to the king. And Esther's like, my people were sold into destruction. Somebody bought it, and the king is enraged by this. And so he steps out because he knows it's Haman, but yet he's just honored Haman, and he's kind of like, what am I going to do? He steps away. And then the king comes back, in and he turns, and he sees it just so happens Haman is pleading his life to Esther. He trips and he falls on top of Esther. The king sees this because, this does not look good. It looks like he's taking advantage of her, and that's it. Haman's done. He is impaled on the very pole that he had uh, prepared for Mordecai. <clears throat> now, the, the edict is still, uh, still active. And the way things worked there, it, once the king had made an edict, there's no reversing it. And so Mordecai, now in favor with the king, asked basically for a counter-edict, allowing the Jews to, to basically defend themselves. And so that is issued, and it goes out, and, and they were able to basically war off their own destruction. 75,000 people are killed. This is not a small event. 75,000 people are killed. The Jews are spared. And also who were killed were uh, all ten sons of Haman, Haman the enemy of Israel. All ten sons were killed. Now, <clears throat> this is an event that's even still uh, celebrated today by the Jews. It's a festival, the Feast of Purim. They call it the Festival of Purim. Uh, next year, March, it's March 20th, and it's a big celebration basically on how God delivered the Jewish people. And the celebration Purim is stemming from the word pure or pur, which means luck or dice. Basically, the story as the Jews understand is that Haman took the dice, rolled against the Jews, and it didn't work out for him. Why? Because Yahweh was involved. 
Here's the scripture. It says, the lot, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This, this one always messed with me. It always felt me, made me uncomfortable. It's just like, oh, is God in favor of gambling? <laughs> Crap shooting? <laughs> you know? um, but really what this is saying is that the Lord, not chance, is in control. That's how a lot of decisions were made in the past. I mean, even the, uh, when uh, Judas had hung himself and, and they had to rip, the apostles had to uh, uh, find a replacement, they chose him by lots. They cast him. So that's how they would make decisions at the time. But this, this proverb is telling us it's the Lord who is in control, not the dice, not the chance, not the decisions or the, the uh, by chance things that happen. Still, in the story of Esther, this story is a story of chance. I mean, there's a whole slew of them. Let's just go through them. Esther is low esteem. She's like outside people group, and she's an orphan. And yet she's selected to be part of the king's harem. By chance, out of the numerous beautiful young virgins, she is appointed queen. By chance, Mordecai happens to overhear the conspiracy that saves the king's life, and the king's indebted to him. By chance, the king can't sleep one night, and he, he is reminded of the honor that's due to Mordecai. And by chance, Haman, in an attempt to plead his life, ends up tripping and falling on top of Esther, and it appears as if he's molesting her or attempting to. Now, this is all a story of about chance, but our culture is inclined to believe that, well, a typical Madisonian would say, isn't all of this just random, right? We're a product of random things. I mean, the, the right element, you know, connected to the other element or the right primordial blob connected with the other primordial blob, and here we are, amoebas, now evolved into what we are now. This has all happened by chance, Right? Or randomness. This is what we tend to, tend to be inclined to think. But what we learn from Esther is that the chances that we take or the decisions that we take and their outcomes, whether for ourselves or whether we're being generous or maybe something bad has happened to us by chance, they're not stemming from pure randomness. But rather, they're under the auspice of God. Doesn't mean he's causing them all but they're under the auspice of God. This is what we would call the concept of providence. Providence. Kind of long there. So go ahead and read it while I take a sip. Providence is, God is involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing, cooperates with them, note that, cooperates with them, and directs them to fulfill his purposes even through seemingly coincidental events. I'm going to say it again. God is involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing, cooperates with them, and just directs them to fulfill his purposes even through seemingly coincidental events. The story of Esther has really kind of hit me to really suspect God when these seemingly coincidental events happen. Um, and everybody has a story. Everyone has a story of that 
they by chance met somebody and they fell in love. And now they're married and have beautiful children. Or by chance they met somebody and it was a job opportunity they, they never would have had before. Or they happen to live next to somebody who was a mentor to them in this particular skill or interest. Or by chance this happened to them and it set them back for years and they had to grow out of that. And so everyone has their story. In fact, as, here's a story I, I did want to share out of American history. This is the summer of 1862. You'll see here. Um, yeah, there we go. This is summer of 1862. This is the Civil Wars happening between the Confederates and the Union. And it's gone on for 18 months. The, uh, the war is really working now in the, in the favor of the South. They've had, the, the North has had a number of military uh, gaffes, um, failures. Their, their leadership is starting to falter. And during this time, Lincoln had written his first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. And his advisors said, sounds good, but not yet. You need some battlefield victories for this to really be effective. Otherwise, it's going to create more problems. So they wanted him to wait. And they were losing their strength as, a, as, a, as an army. The North was faltering. And in the meantime, Europe was watching. The North had set up a naval blockade between the South and the textile industry in, the, in Britain. And so they were stopping all the flow of all their cotton, etc. And Britain was getting impatient. Britain and France were just ready to step in and mediate and to end the war and to recognize the South as a separate nation. In fact, the prime minister at the time said one or two more victories by the South would basically determine their independence and they would be recognized as a Confederate separate nation. So Northern morale was quite low at this time. And Lincoln had at this point had basically committed to God the fate of the Union and the fate of the slaves, saying, if this is your will, it has to happen in the next battle. This is the setting. It just so happens that some Union soldiers in a field found underneath a locust tree a small case of cigars, and wrapped around those cigars was a piece of paper. And they were blown away to find this paper. And it was, it was this, Special Orders 191. What was wrapped around that case was orders that General Lee had written. And he had written and copied and dispersed to all of his officers. This was one of them. I mean, this is serious stuff. They would, the officers, some of them would take it, one of them took it uh, and he would sew it inside his coat so as not to lose it. Another one read it, tore it up into small plugs and ate it. This is highly confidential. But yet somebody carelessly left it wrapped around some cigars and dropped it on a field. Of course, with this new intelligence, the union has this windfall and they just, they scramble, they make their adjustments and it was uh, Lee's strategy to basically divide the line of the union and basically weaken them to the point where they had to surrender. So this changed everything. They immediately were able to adjust to what the strategy of the South was. And four days later was the Battle of Antietam. And if you know about the Battle of Antietam, it was the bloodiest 
event on American soil. 22,000 casualties, 22,000 of this battle. But it was the battle that turned things in favor of the North. <clears throat> As you know, the Union was saved and slavery was abolished. But you have to ask, if it wasn't for those papers around those cigars, how much longer would we have had slavery in the United States, legally? What position would the United States be, like only 50 years later facing World War I, or even 75 years later, uh, what would it be its position, involvement uh, of the Axis versus the Allies in World War II? What would have happened to the Nazi machine? Would it have had more free reign? We don't know. We can only speculate. But it reminds us, God is sovereign and is working even through seemingly coincidental events. The teachings of the Bible, and especially the book of Esther, is that our lives, as much as we may make our own plans and ambitions, and despite the events that happen, whether fortunate or tragic, that God is fitting them into his story and his purposes will prevail. Things will work out in the end. <clears throat> so what does this mean? Does God have full, full control? And if he does, does it really matter what I do or what it is I say? Here's, here's an item that is helpful for me. I hope it is for you. God is sovereign and has control but he doesn't exercise meticulous control. Let me explain. A.W. Tozer wrote this uh, small essay uh, about how to live within the will of God. And part of it which was helpful for me is basically he said, the shepherd allows the sheep the full field to kind of roam, right? They can go eat there, they can go lay over there, eat over there. He doesn't dictate that they eat from that tuft of grass, and then you've got to eat here. I mean, if I did that to my children, hey, you can play. You play with these Legos for 10 minutes, and then you got to be playing this over here for five minutes, and then I want you to wash your hands. And then if I controlled all of that, what kind of relationship would I have with my child? And what kind of development would my child not have? We want them to grow in independence and and God allows that. He allows the free, the shepherd allows the free roam of those sheep, watching them carefully, setting boundaries. God gives us fr some freedom. It says in Proverbs 16, verses 19, it says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Tozer again says this, and I found this so freeing. The man or woman who is wholly and joyously surrendered to Christ, that's the prerequisite, wholly and joyously surrendered to Christ cannot make a wrong decision or a wrong choice. Any choice will be the right one. Isn't that empowering? That God would allow us, that he would trust us to make those decisions, but yet he is in control. So trust in God's providence. Mordecai did. Notice his response to Esther. We're going to visit that again. Notice his response to Esther and it says in Esther 4, uh, chapter 4, Mordecai says, For if you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Did you notice that? They're going to come from another place. He understands that God's plan is for the Jewish people to continue to exist. And he understands God's promise to the people. That God has a future for them, a hope and a future. And he's not, Mordecai isn't panicky. 
He's not saying to Esther, our existence is solely dependent upon you. He doesn't say that. He says, relief and deliverance is going to come from another place. If you don't do something here, it will happen. How do you handle bad news when you hear that report? Do you trust God that he's in control? And if so, what does that mean about any anxiety anxiety you might have? Is God's will for you like, white, uh, do you perceive God's will as like walking a tightrope? Where he's just like, you know, ah, this fear and apprehension. Or is it this open expanse that God has given you? What has God's promise to us? It says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If we have faith in Jesus and we belong to him and he, he's going to be returning for us, he's gonna, he saves us from the coming judgment against evil, and the Lord's going to make all things new, brings about justice, everything that has happened wrong, and you know a lot has happened wrong in, in your lives and in the news and in the world, God is going to be setting somehow all of that right again. And in Revelation, it even talks about heaven is coming on earth. We pray that every day. Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We're praying for that. And with that is our hope. We know the promise that things are going to work out in the end. We put our trust in him. But as Mordecai posed to Esther, you can be a part of that plan. Notice Mordecai didn't tell her outright what to do. You got to do this, Esther. This is what you're going to do. But he says, you and your family will perish. <laughs> That's not good news. But you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, deliverance is coming. It could be through you. Are you going to step up? It's happening whether you can agree with it or not. You could be in this position with the king for this moment. This is a pivotal moment in the change of heart in Esther. And she, rather than she could either cower or she could arise. This brings to the next point that I believe Esther is teaching us. Is that courage comes when purpose is realized. I'll say it again. Purpose comes or courage comes when purpose is realized. She realizes at this moment that this whole thing about me being an orphan, now I am a queen, this is not about me. There's something larger going on here. And that the gravity of the moment reveals her character, and she responds with responsibility, duty, and calling, and she steps up. Thank God she steps up. And she realized her unusual position and sees the hand of providence that she could be part of the plan. What position have you been placed into? What talents do you have? And is it for such a time as this? Perhaps it is. Are you aware of what is larger going on in your life? Or are you just living kind of your own thing, thinking it's about you? Nothing gives you clarity and courage in life. And, and, and and courage to step up when you need to, like knowing your purpose. And I'm just going to quickly review that, and I'm going to ask the band to come up as we wrap up here soon. God's will and purpose for you is this. 
One is to love God and others with your whole self, to belong to him and his people, to belong to him and his people. God wants you to be a part of his family. The third thing is to grow by the way of discipleship, following Christ, growing, knowing that you're not going to be, you're not going to get everything right. There are failings. There are things that we learn, but Christ has made us whole, and you grow in that. Number four is to serve and to give of yourself, which includes the use of your talents. Let's stand, if you would.